Well, I don't know if you've recognized it yet, but we do try to do things around here with a reason, with a purpose. And there was a reason why we read Luke 2 this morning. It's not just that it was a birth narrative or remains a birth narrative, but it's also true that in that passage, the one we had read this morning from Luke chapter 2, along with the birth narrative that is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 2, as well as a reference in John chapter 7 and verse 42, we find reference to the great prophecy of Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, most of you know that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, as in fact Christ was. It is, of course, one of the classic prophecies about the incarnation and the coming of Christ. And one thing I want to make expressly clear this morning is, is that this is no obscure prophecy. This is not something that was done in a corner. This is not something that was hidden. You remember that the Magi, when they came to Herod, inquired about this prophecy You'll remember that the religious teachers of Israel knew about this prophecy and they made it known to the Magi and to Herod. And that passage in John tells us that even the general population alive at the time of the coming of Christ were very, very aware that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and they knew that from this passage. And so it seemed reasonable to me today given the fact that this prophecy is so clear and so renowned that we should know it. Not just the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but we should know the prophecy that's been recorded for us in Micah, and I want to endeavor to do that today. So, I want you to turn to the book of Micah. You'll find it in the Minor Prophets, right between Jonah and Nahum. While you're turning there, I'll give you a little background. The author of this book is the prophet Micah. He prophesied in 750, about 750 years before Christ, which makes him a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. And there are a number of parallels between those two prophetic books. Both prophets speak a great deal about the Christ and they provide a lot of clarity uh, that had previously been unknown as they unfold the details of his life and his ministry. Both Isaiah and Micah present Christ as the one who will ultimately scatter the captives and deliver them from their enemies and regather them again. Isaiah and Micah both are serving as prophets of God in the same era. Isaiah prophesied from Jerusalem. He was the city prophet. He served the Lord from the great city of Jerusalem. He's very familiar and very well known. Far less known is this prophet Micah, who really is a country prophet, who ministered from a place that's rarely mentioned really in scripture, Moresh at Gath, which is about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So you can think Roseville from here. And it's important to note that Isaiah and Micah both addressed many common themes and in fact even quote one another. In fact, there's discussion a great deal of it between commentators on, on their opinion as to who quoted whom and where. Their career overlapped with the time of King Ahaz and the time of King Hezekiah in the southern kingdom of Judah. And both of them shared of the coming judgment of God. And so as we come to Micah's message, you there yet? Did you find it? As we come, no, I can give you my page number, but that's only relatively effective. As we come to Micah's message, Israel has been a divided kingdom. You remember that, 10 tribes in the north, two in the south, 
The 10 northern tribes are apostate. The two southern tribes are not doing much better at this point. The northern kingdom was just about to fall to Assyria. This puts us at about 721 B.C., And Micah then comes into this setting as a messenger of future judgment. Micah's prophecy predicts the doom that is approaching, that is going to befall the southern kingdom in particular of Judah, though he he addresses the, the fall of the northern kingdom as well. His real focus is Nebuchadnezzar, who is coming in another hundred years or so. Uh, and, and Babylon will, will come then and, and conquer and lead into captivity the southern tribes of Judah. The book can be outlined really in three messages. There are three distinct messages. Each one of them begins with a call, and you can see this in chapters 1, 3, and 6, begins with a call to hear or to listen to what he is about to say. And Micah is fearless, and he speaks boldly on God's behalf. He's foretelling a judgment, a destruction that is to come against Judah for their unfaithfulness. Let me show you just one example. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8. Micah's talking about the false prophets. You'll notice verse 6, he says, the, the sun will go down on the prophets and the day will go, grow black over them and the seers will be ashamed and the diviners humiliated. They will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. He's speaking about the false shepherds of Israel, these, these diviners, these prophets. But he makes a contrast in verse 8. Note this, on the other hand, I am filled with power with the spirit of Yahweh and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, even to Israel his sin. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. And he begins to catalog their sins who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her heads pronounce judgment for a bride, for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on Yahweh, saying, Is Yahweh not in our midst? They presume upon God, in other words. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Babylon will come in like a a giant cat and just bulldoze the city. Jerusalem will become like a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of God will become high places of a forest. You see, this is a prophecy that accuses, and Micah really acts here as a prosecutor of God's people for the rebels that they are, and this is a low ebb in the spiritual life of God's people. God's people are awash in sin. The leaders are money-grubbing, and they are corrupt and covetous. The spiritual leaders of Judah have neglected the true God and they have traded themselves to every false God and every false prophecy. They hire themselves out to the highest bidder. The judges are perverting justice. They're taking bribes. The poor are oppressed and they're suffering at the hands of the rich and the people themselves have forsaken Yahweh. They've they've grown syncretistically to, to, to engage with all the religions of, of the people around them and they are worshiping false gods and it is into this mess that God sends Micah to declare judgment. But what you must know about Isaiah and you must know about Micah is that they are also messengers of grace. Interspersed throughout both books, And we'll see today in Micah, after each pending statement of judgment, 
there is then a promise that is made, a promise that is made of of peace and of a resplendent future and of a restored relationship with Yahweh. And as usual, when we come to prophetic literature, events, as you know, are separated by massive spans of time. And so what we will read today engages Israel in its context back in the 8th century, but it also speaks all the way out to a day yet to come. Look with me at just a couple of these promises of deliverance. Chapter 2, just as we acquaint ourselves with this book a little bit, chapter 2 and verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob, and I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture, They will be noisy with men. And then we get this picture of the Messiah who's referred to as the breaker. I love that. This time of year, sometimes you can can see that great Coast Guard ship up or our military ships up up towards the Bering Sea in that area where where those ships are breakers and they're going through and they're, they're making a path. They're making a way. Look at verse 13. The breaker goes up before them. They break out. They pass through the gate and they go by it. And so their king goes on before them and Yahweh at their head. That is a prophecy that speaks of one who is a shepherd and one who is a king. That is a theme throughout this book. Look at chapter 4. Right on the heels of the section we read there in chapter 3 where Jerusalem would be plowed like a field And it would become a heap of ruins. Verse 4, look at the note of hope. Now it will be in the last days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills and the peoples will stream to it and many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may instruct us from his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem, and he will judge between many peoples. He will render decisions for mighty distant nations, and they will hammer. Have you heard these words before? They're in the book of Isaiah. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. And each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them tremble. For the mouth of Yahweh of hosts is spoken, though all the peoples walk, each of them in the name of his God. As for us, we will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God, forever and ever. That is a reference that pictures, those verses picture a kingdom that is yet to come and to be established on this earth, the millennial kingdom of Christ, where Christ himself will reign and rule from Jerusalem over the earth. It will be a time of incredible peace and incredible prosperity, a time like we have not known on this sin-filled planet. Christ will rule the nations with a rod of iron so that the implements of war will be pounded into common tools for work. There will be prosperity and there will be peace and it will be a time where the nations will flood to Jerusalem, to Israel, that they might learn righteousness and truth. And so all I really want you to lock away at this point is this, that while Micah is is a, a messenger of judgment, Micah is also and ultimately a messenger of hope, a messenger of restoration that will come on the other side of judgment. So let's look more carefully at the prophecy that Micah relays in chapter 5. And I wanted to do this again, one, so that you might see that this prophecy holds a lot more than simply the location of the Messiah's birth. I want you to see Christ as Micah portrays him. 
as you consider Christ this Christmas and you encounter the words Bethlehem or the word Bethlehem in, in your reading, in your singing, that when you think about all of this, you would relish in the identity that Micah speaks of when he speaks of Christ in this prophecy. The baby in Bethlehem's manger is king. And the baby in Bethlehem's manger is a shepherd. And the baby in Bethlehem's manger is the one who will rule over his people in peace. This is a very, very important prophecy. Let's read it together. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us with a rod. They will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient of days. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in childbirth has borne a child then the remainder of his brothers will return to the sons of Israel. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be peace. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to these things. It is your word. We are dependent upon you dependent upon your spirit to illumine our understanding. And we ask that you might receive the glory that you are due and that we might treasure Christ, who is our king, our shepherd, and our peace. Amen. Well, the prophecy begins in verse 1 with a call to battle. Did you see it? Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. The enemy is right at the gate. And the siege is already laid, and the king is about to be deposed and mocked. That's what he's referring to when he says, with a rod, they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This judge is a king, and this city is cut off, and Israel is humiliated, and the king is struck. He is smitten on the cheek. That is... That is that he, he is going to be disgraced publicly. He is going to be mocked severely. But the question is, which king? And again, there's discussion about this. This might refer to the king that is present on the throne at the point that Micah wrote this, and that is Hezekiah himself. He was utterly humiliated before the king of Assyria, by the, a man by the name of Sennacherib. You can find him in 2 Kings chapter 18. Hezekiah was humbled and he had to pay a massive tribute of treasure that most of which he had to, he had to actually cut the doors off the temple to have enough gold and silver to be able to pay this tribute to Sennacherib. I think it's more likely that this prophecy looks down the road another hundred years or so to the last king of the Davidic dynasty. That is King Zedekiah. And you can read about him in 2 Kings 24 and 25 when Nebuchadnezzar came and laid a siege all the way around Jerusalem. You might remember they took the king's sons and they slaughtered, him, slaughtered them all right before his very eyes. And then they gouged out his eyes and led him off into captivity. Of the two kings, Zedekiah certainly got the worst of it. And as he was deposed, that marked an end, the demise really of David's throne as it had existed up until this time. Since that captivity in Babylon, no one has resided on the throne of David in Jerusalem. But the point here is simply this, that the one who is appointed to protect and to lead and to judge the king, the one who is to guide Israel is in the place of being deposed and smitten with a rod and he is utterly powerless and he is humiliated and he is helpless 
And you can imagine the urgency of the situation. In fact, it's frankly terrifying, and we as Americans, uh, I don't mean to pick on us, but if, if you go to many other places, they would say, what's wrong with you people? You, you're sort of ethnocentric. You don't think much about other people. Anything preceding, you know, 1776, well, that doesn't really much matter to you. But friends, this stuff should matter to us. Put yourself there. Think of the terror that came upon Israel. We, we've never known something like this where another nation has invaded. They're right on the border. And you're beginning to look at your children and wonder how many will survive. You're beginning to wonder if your husband's going to war and whether you will go forward with him or no. There is a lot that is being threatened here as Micah speaks. Israel is not strong enough to deter this. And in fact, Micah is not even really giving a warning here. He's simply saying, look, it's coming. This is going to happen. What a time of panic, of paralyzing fear and insecurity. And what's wild is that in the midst of this super threatening prophecy about national devastation, Micah says, I have the answer for you. And he comes in the form of a child born in the podunk town of Bethlehem. There's an infant there and he is born to peasant parents. And he is one like the great King David before him. He will be a great shepherd king. Now with that as background, we come to the more famous part of Micah's prophecy beginning in verse 2 where we see first of all that the child in Bethlehem's manger is the sovereign king. Christ is the sovereign king. And by sovereign, that's not just redundant. He is a king that cannot be resisted. He is a king that cannot be opposed. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He's that king. He's the ultimate king. And Micah here turns and he, in a sort of a personification, he turns and he actually begins speaking to this small village of Bethlehem. About seven miles to the south of Jerusalem, in our text, it's called Bethlehem Ephrathah. And Ephrathah was added to distinguish this Bethlehem from another Bethlehem that is up in Galilee. It's sort of like Auburn. It's confusing. There's an Auburn in every state. We have to say Auburn, California. Well, this was Bethlehem, Ephrathah. The Ephrathites were a clan from the tribe of Judah who lived around Jerusalem. In fact, many think that Ephrathah was the actual name initially of Bethlehem. But note the first word of verse 2. It's a word of contrast. It's a, it's a pivot point. The prophecy that Micah has been relaying of judgment suddenly hit, pivots. It, it turns from judgment to a hope of deliverance. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you might remember too that Bethlehem means what? House of bread, which is intriguing to think about given that the bread of life was born there, right? It's also true that not a half mile from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, was a place called Migdal Eder, and it was a place where lambs were raised. They were raised for the Passover. They were raised for sacrifice. People on their way to travel up to Jerusalem could pass through this area, and they would select a lamb there that would be fitting for sacrifice. In fact, this place, Migdal Eder, is likely the very spot where the shepherds who were in their fields by night encountered the glory of God and the angels who announced the birth of Christ. It's amazing to think, isn't it, that in this very place, not only was the bread of life born in 
Bethlehem, the house of bread, but the Lamb of God was born in the very place where the lambs that were sacrificed to God, the very one who would be our Passover was born in that very region, and it's very attractive to cling to those things, and you think to yourself, man, it's almost as if God sort of knew what he was doing in all of this, right? But it's very important to note that as much as that is, those things are a point to be made or not, the, the real significance of Christ being born in Bethlehem is not really these allusions to his work, but that the fact that he was born there qualifies him as the Messiah. The Bible is full of types, things that anticipate Christ and his work. King David was certainly one of them. And this vital detail that Christ is born in Bethlehem is important really for a number of reasons. There are three, certainly three links to David in all of this. David was born in Bethlehem. David rose from the, the humble beginnings of of being born in a, in a no-reputation town and ascending to the very highest office of the land. He is the most celebrated king that Israel ever knew. And beyond that, he began as a what? A shepherd. God really did know what he was doing. I shouldn't use the past tense when I say things like that. You see... Bethlehem directly connects Christ to David. David descended from Jesse, and Jesse was an Ephrathite. And you remember that God had promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that there would be one who would come from his bloodline, a forever king who would rule over a forever kingdom. And so just as David was born in this hick town, so Jesus is born there. And then secondly, because we're told specifically that this was going to be the birthplace of the Messiah in Micah 2, you can imagine how that serves generations to follow who are eagerly looking for the Messiah. And you know how you've got to whittle that thing down. Well, the funnel started out real thin. He's got to come through the funnel and only those who are born in Bethlehem qualify. We know that this Messiah will be one who will be born in the town of Bethlehem. And so anybody who claims to be the Messiah, and there have been many throughout history, it has to begin here. Can you trace your line back through David to actually being born in the city of Bethlehem? And that's what's so amazing because Bethlehem is an utterly insignificant place as far as cities go. Micah says this, you're too little to be among the clans of Judah. <laughs> Bethlehem was so microscopic you couldn't even find it on a map. Literally, there, there was no dot. It probably still wouldn't have a dot on the map except for this prophecy and the one who was born in line with it. It was a very tiny town. It was unimpressive. It was of no reputation. In fact, Joshua lists, makes a list of the cities in Judah in, in Joshua chapter 15. It goes on for 43 verses of the cities in Judah, and guess who's not among the list? It's also amazing because for such a dinky, no-account town, there were a lot of things that happened there. You might remember that Rebecca was buried there after she died giving birth to Benjamin. You might remember that Naomi and Ruth settled there when they moved from Moab and Ruth marries Boaz. You might know, as we've been talking about, that David's family hailed from there. You might even remember that, that awful deed that Herod did when he sought to wipe out all the male children 
in a satanically motivated and desperate attempt to preserve his own authority and place as king. But beloved, this is, this birth of this Messiah is the most significant thing that ever happened to Bethlehem. Of all the other names, of all the other events, this is Bethlehem's greatest claim to fame. This is why it really shouldn't be called the city of David. It ought to be called the city of the greater David because that's really what's behind all of this. Yes, David's most celeb- or Israel's most celebrated king came from there, but no one rivals the child born this night. Jesus Christ is Bethlehem's favorite son. The birth of Christ put Bethlehem on the map. This place that is microscopic, this place that is obscure and insignificant becomes, think of it, the very town, the very city, the very place of all the world's hope. Look at how Micah speaks of this sovereign king. Verse 2, he says, from you. That's a reference to Bethlehem. From you, one will go forth, note this, for me, to be ruler in Israel, his goings forth are from everlasting and from the ancient of days. There is going to be a ruler, O Bethlehem, and he will go forth for me. Now, I know what you're used to when it comes to your rulers, You're used to your rulers fleecing you. You're used to your rulers stealing from you and oppressing you. But this ruler, he will be unlike any other ruler. He will go forth in the interest of my people. He will go forth for me. This is God speaking. He will be my king. He will be my representative. He will be my ruler. I have called him and I have commissioned him and I have sent him. He will not be self-serving and he will not be self-exalting. He will not be corrupt. He will go forward for me with justice and mercy and truth and righteousness. People say they're looking for a couple of different candidates for our upcoming election. This would be all right, wouldn't it? His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient of days. We already mentioned that this king would be a descendant of David, therefore he had to be what? He had to be a man. He had to be descended from David. And then Micah employs this loaded language There are things that are said here that could never be said of any mere man. His goings forth are what? From everlasting? From the ancient of days? Beloved, that terminology takes us back before David, and it it leads us back before Moses and before Jacob and before Isaac and before Abraham was born, I am And before Noah and before Adam and Eve and back even before time, I mean, how far back is the ancient of days? How how do we measure out from everlasting? This is a line that has no beginning and a line that has no end. This is the kind of language the Bible uses when it's speaking of none other than eternal God. God is called in Daniel 7, 9, what? The ancient of days. In Habakkuk 1, 12, we read, Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? God's purposes, Isaiah 37, 26, are from the days of old. Lamentation speaks of God this way, Yahweh had done what he had purposed, he has completed his word which he commanded from days of old. It is an eternal word from an eternal God. 
Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done. This is high language. This is language that stretches all the way back into eternity past, things that could never be spoken of any merely human child. And so as Micah comes to foretell this king, he speaks of one who is a human descendant of David, to be sure, but he speaks of one whose days are from all eternity and from the ancient of days. He is one who is son of David, and he is one who is son of God. He is man, and he is God. He is fully human, and he is fully divine. And the rest of the scriptures, of course, make that crystal clear. Isaiah wrote of him, didn't he, in Isaiah 9, for a child will be born. That's a reference really to the Christ child in his incarnation, being born of the Virgin Mary. That's a reference to his humanity. For a child will be born to us, a son, that is an eternal son, will be given to us. That's looking to the Father who gave his only begotten son. That references the deity of Christ. And think for a second about the things said about this child. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will become, be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. How broad were the shoulders of the baby Jesus? It is amazing. We have set before us a ruler like no other from time eternal and yet being born in time to peasant parents in a backwoods town, not in royal splendor, but in an animal's feeding trough. The Magi said that they were aware from Micah's prophecy that this child was to be born, what? King of the Jews. He was not born a prince. He was born king. And he will forever be king. And that is why Gabriel can announce to Mary, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. You remember that means Jehovah saves. And he will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and there will be no end to his kingdom. Much has been said that Christ did not come in the trappings of royalty. He did not come on a mighty white stallion. He did not come with a crown upon his head. He came in humility. He came to wear a crown of thorns. He was born to impoverished parents in the smallest place. And that's very much like God, isn't it? Which is why the angelic host comes to the shepherds and says, look, here, here's the sign. You're going to look and you're going to find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This baby comes as God with all the sovereign authority of God to rule the world, to rule over every created thing, everything that is above the earth and on the earth and below the earth. This child is the sovereign king and yet, this night in the little town of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, this baby is born in a simple manger. This is the one who is marked, this king, by both majesty and meekness. Well, we need to move 
Look at verse 2. Again, it begins as a contrast. But when we come to verse 3, we read the word therefore, and therefore it really reaches back to verse 1. Verse 2 is a parenthesis, this promise of this deliverer who would come. And in verse 3, we see that this deliverer will come at just the right time. But Micah comes back to talking about the judgment again. And he says, therefore, he will give them up. That is, God will give them up. Who? The Jews, Israel. Until the time, note those words. This, this is looking back, or, or looking forward, I should say, to, to, to refer to this long period between the first and second comings of Christ, known as the times of the Gentiles. God will give up Israel as he has and he will let his people be overrun by her enemies and they will languish for a time, but he is not done with his people yet. Again, until the time he will give them up, but only for a time. And then we read, when she who is in childbirth has born a child. And I know where you're going because it's very tempting to think that this is a reference to Mary. But she here who is in childbirth is not a reference to Mary but to the nation of Israel personified. If you look back at chapter four and verse nine, at the end of the verse, you'll notice that Israel again is likened to a pregnant woman He says that writhing has taken hold of you like a woman in childbirth, writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city and dwell in the field. That is, you're going to go away. You're going to be led into captivity. You are going to, to suffer judgment because of your rejection of me and your rebellion. We see the same thing in Revelation chapter 12, if you want to turn over there, where Israel is portrayed as a woman. In labor, keep a finger in Micah, we'll come back. Chapter 12 and verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. That is Israel. And note this, she was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and on his head heads were seven diadems and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. This is a a picture of Satan. And he threw them to the earth And the dragon stood before the woman, that is the dragon, the devil, stood before Israel who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Note this, and she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Do you see the connection? And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That That statement looks back at the birth of Christ and says this child came from Israel and he was born and it skips the whole ministry of Christ, his whole earthly ministry, to to speak about the fact that he was caught up to God and the picture is that he is going to return yet again to gather his people. All of this anticipates the second coming when the remnant of Israel will be returned and restored. And Micah even speaks about that. Go back again to verse 4. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 3. Notice he says, then the remainder of his brothers will return to the sons of Israel. Some have taken this to be Mary and the Christ child and that, that this remainder of his brothers refers to the Gentiles. I don't think that can be because there's no sense in which you can speak about the Gentiles returning to the sons of Israel. This looks forward to a time when the remnant of Israel will return to Israel. And, and, and I think it looks at that period of time when, when Israel will be brought back by Christ himself to be restored 
That great ingathering of which the Bible speaks where Israel, who is presently hardened in their unbelief, will, will have the spirit of supplication poured out on them by God. Their, their hard hearts will be softened. And you remember Zechariah speaks of it in chapter 12 that their, their, their dry eyes will give way to tears to weep as they look on him whom they have pierced, even Christ, the King of Israel. This is Micah's way of saying what Paul said in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. So Bethlehem's manger has in it a sovereign king. But there's another description given in Micah 5 of this child. The child in Bethlehem's manger is also the good shepherd. Look at verse 4. And he, referring to this child, he, he will stand. He will take initiative. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh and in the might of his name. In the might of the name of Yahweh his God and they will remain because at that time the text tells us he will be great to the ends of the earth. Again, all of this is written against the backdrop of the false shepherds of Israel. If you want to flip to the left, just a few books, you'll, you'll run into the prophet Ezekiel in the 34th chapter. These false sheep, shepherds, as I said, have been fleecing the sheep and feeding on the fat of God's flock. In Ezekiel 34, we see the indictment against these shepherds in the first 10 verses Notice verse 1, he says to the shepherds, I'm sorry, skip to verse 2, woe, shepherds of Israel who have been shepherding themselves, should not the shepherd shepherd the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You sacrifice the fat sheep without shepherding the flock. Those who are sickly, you've not strengthened, and the diseased, you have not healed, and the broken you have not bound up, and the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you searched for the lost. But with strength and severity you have dominated them, and they were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over the surface of the earth all the surface of the earth, and there was not one to seek or search for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, surely because my flock has become plunder, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not seek for my flock, but rather the shepherds shepherded themselves and did not shepherd my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus the Lord Yahweh says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will seek my flock from their hand and make them to cease from shepherding the flock. So the shepherds will not shepherd themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. God says, I'm done with you. You've abused my people and you've not cared for them. And they've been spread over the face of the globe. For thus says Yahweh, verse 11, Behold, I myself will seek my sheep and care for them. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among the sheep, which are spread out, so I will care for my sheep and I will deliver them from all the places which they were scattered on a gloomy and cloudy day, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land and I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and all the inhabited places of the land. I will shepherd them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel and there 
They will lie down on good grazing ground and they will be shepherded in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will shepherd my flock. I will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. I will search for the lost. I will bring back the scattered. I will bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd them with judgments. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the goats. And he goes on, skip down with me to verse 23. Uh, Verse 22, therefore I will save my flock and they will no longer be plunder. I will judge between one sheep and another. Then, note this, I will establish over them one shepherd, my shepherd, David. Now who's he talking about? King David, who was a shepherd king, has been dead for centuries Who's Ezekiel pointing to? I will establish them over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will shepherd them himself and be their shepherd, and I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David, that is again another messianic reference, will be prince among them, and I, Yahweh, have spoken. No wonder Jesus comes announcing, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Beloved, he is the one who gave his life for us, who purchased us, who feeds us on the best of pasture, who sought us when we were lost, who restores us when we're weak, who leads us by still waters. Christ, the baby in the manger, is the great shepherd of the sheep. We need to read the minor prophets, yes? If you're still in Micah, you can just look over at chapter 7 and verse 14. Notice this cry, shepherd your people with your scepter the flock of your inheritance which dwells by itself in a forest in the midst of a fruitful orchard. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the ancient days, as in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt. Here is this cry for the great shepherd of the sheep to bring deliverance to his people And his people will be at rest, and his people will be secure. His people will be stable and safe under the care of the great shepherd. Why? Well, Micah says, because at that time, verse 4, he will be great to the ends of the earth. And that is not the way Christ was received, was he? He came into the world and what? The world didn't leave the welcome light on. They had no idea who he was. And he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. But to those who receive him, he gave what? The right to become the children of God. And and so here is this picture again of of Israel coming out again in in mass and returning to the shepherd of their souls. And this time, at his second coming, he he will be great, not just in Israel, but he will be great to the ends of the earth. We saw that in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Again, another passage which is recorded for us not only in this book, but in Isaiah. It will be in the last days the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains, and it will be lifted up above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh. You can see that there is this entire worldwide response coming to Christ, coming to Israel, coming to that city that was set among the world as as a place to come and see the great king. Now he will be great 
and the world will see him as great and he will rule with a, God, a rod of iron and it will be a time ultimately of peace. Which brings us to verse five. Who is this child in the manger? He is the sovereign king. Who is this child in the manger? He is the good shepherd. And finally, if we can borrow a title from Isaiah, who is this child in the manger? Well, the child in Bethlehem's manger is the prince of peace. Look at verse five, and this one will be peace. That is to say, Christ will be our shalom. He does something that no descendant from David was ever able to do, and that is bring full and final peace to Israel. And here again is this great parallel between Micah and Isaiah. They spoke of the Virgin Mary. They spoke of the birth of Christ. They spoke of Bethlehem. They, they speak of, of uh, many things in common. Here they speak of Christ as that very prince of peace. Colossians 1 and verse 20, Christ is the one, we're told, who makes peace through the blood of his cross. Paul himself said, for he himself is, that is Christ, is our peace. He has reconciled us through the shedding of his blood. We were separated, alienated from God. Our sins had separated us, and yet Christ comes as the great and only mediator between God and man. He lives a righteous life. And we're told in Romans that the wages of death, or the wages of sin is death, and one might ask the question, well, why did this, this righteous son of God have to suffer death? Well, because he took our sins upon himself. He bore our sins on his body, in his body, on the tree. Therefore, establishing peace God could then be just and the justifier. Jesus Christ came to suffer so that God in his justice rightly directs his wrath at Christ because Christ was bearing our sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There was a great exchange. Jesus took our sin. We received his perfect and righteous life. We're now qualified for heaven. We've been forgiven. Our slate is clean. He has given us the righteousness that qualifies us to dwell with the holy God. And he gave that to us by grace and through faith. And thus he established peace through his cross. What is Micah's message? It is first that Jesus Christ is the sovereign king. And I want to ask you this morning, have you come and bowed the knee to present yourself before this sovereign king? If you are his glad subject, if you are a willing citizen of his kingdom, I tell you, you will never be shaken. You will never be threatened. You will never lose because he is a king who is sovereign over all and he cannot be deposed and he will not die and he cannot be defeated. He has conquered every foe. Micah's message is that he is the sovereign king and that he is also the good shepherd. Isaiah tells us that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has gone aside to our own way. But if you as a wayward sheep would return, have you come? Have you come back to the path of the shepherd? Have you come to follow this good shepherd who leads to what? To good pasture and to safe grazing land. He, he leads us to, to quiet waters. He is the one who gave his life for the sheep. Beloved, have you taken refuge in him? Because he is coming again. He is coming again as judge for those who reject him. But he is coming again as the great shepherd of the sheep to gather us into his fold forevermore. If you are one of his sheep, you will never, ever perish.
he is the sovereign king. He is the good shepherd. And Micah says he is the prince of peace. And I would ask you yet again a third question. Have you come to him who can establish peace between your soul and God? Flip over with me. One page to the right as you go, maybe two. You go to the end of the book. Micah chapter 7. Hear Micah's conclusion. Hear the way Micah understands Yahweh. He says, who is a God like you who forgives iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold fast to his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness. He will again have compassion on us and he will subdue our iniquities And you, Lord, will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You see, in Christ, there is peace with God. And that giant sigh of release that you experience when you read words about the compassion and the mercy and the loving kindness and the faithfulness of, of this forgiving God, that, that, that tells us that you not only have peace with God, but you have the peace of God. You, for the first time, if you will come to Christ, will know peace inwardly as you have never known it. And you will be forgiven and you will rest securely and you will dwell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever with him. If you will repent and come humbly and surrender, he will be your peace. Well, we cannot close without returning back to Luke chapter 2, and I just want to highlight one statement. Here we find those shepherds out in their fields keeping watch by night. In verse 9, and an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I am bringing you news of great joy, which will be for all the people. What an amazing statement! I don't, uh, my kids, when I had children, my kids were for me, right? Here's a child born, yes, to Mary, and yes, to Joseph, but, but, but here is a child that is born for you, a Savior, who is Christ, that is the Greek word for Messiah, who is Christ the Lord, Beloved, have you bowed before this king, before this shepherd, before this prince? This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, Praising God, this, this bright light that had been shining and it had shaken these guys out of their, out of their, their night watch, suddenly it gets loud in, in included. It's loud and it's bright and it's, it's, it's amazing. It's beyond them. And listen to these final words and cling to them as you go this Christmas. Suddenly there appeared with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Let's pray. Lord, the psalmist asks the question, what is man that you take notice of him? That is a right question to be sure. 
But Lord, you are a God of love and mercy and compassion. You have not cut us off as our sins deserve, but instead you have sent your son, born of a woman, born under law, who fulfilled it all and then took our sins upon himself, being crucified and suffering and drinking up the wrath of God on our behalf. Lord, what thanks can we render unto you? Our hearts are glad in Jesus. And Lord, we have known your sovereign rule and we give you praise. We anticipate the day of your return when you will rule again and you will be vindicated before the entire earth. People will see that you are in fact King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, you have shepherded us like the good shepherd and we have in that promise not only the blessings and benefits of salvation and the security of knowing that we belong to you, but Lord, we have the promise that you will in fact give us eternal life and you will never, ever, ever lose us. And Lord, you are the Prince of Peace. And this world seeks for peace and cannot find it. But in Christ we have it. And what a treasured gift that is. What a Christmas gift that is. To be at rest. Lord Jesus, you are everything. Our heart's desire, our joy, our hope, our longing, our surety, our security. You are our king and our shepherd and our peace and we give you praise. Lord, be conspicuous in our Christmas celebrations, please. Insert yourself and make yourself apparent. Help us, keep us from that pathetic celebration of covetousness, which is so often part of this season. Lord, we are your people, a people for your own possession, and a people who are saved to give you praise and to extol your name, and so we do with joy. Amen. I close with those words recorded by the author of Hebrews in chapter 13 and verse 20. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus Christ, equip you in every good thing to do his will by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.